Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KS1220 and 98.1 FM Radio. Every week on Thursday, we have a conversation about business, and that's what we're about to do today. But everybody asks us, why is a show Ask Brian? My name is Peter, and why do you spell Brian with me? Everyone I knew growing up spelled Brian B-R-I-A-N or B-R-Y-N, and you're spelling your name B-R-I-E-N. So for that purpose, we actually have a designated person here. That's all they do. They think up all week, what can they talk about, and why is Brian spelled with me? And his name is Matt. Matt, are you there? I am here, Peter, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yes, this is actually my only job. I get paid for one hour a week to explain why we call it Ask Brian and spell it with an E. Well, I'm going to give away one of them, and that is a, just an excellent concept that you're on the show each week. <laughs> well, I appreciate but, that. Uh, for, pers- uh, personally, before I begin doing the show with you, uh, Peter, I thought it was because you're just an exotic kind of guy, and that's why you wanted to spell Ask Brian with an E. Exotic is definitely a concept, but <laughs> let, let's go on, because the listeners really don't know why Brian is spelled with an E. They sure. think B-R-I-N or B-R-Y-N, or they think of the pub down the street, O'Brien's pub. But, you know, we're not Irish, and, you know, there's no other reason why we're spelling E. So give us some hints of why we're spelling Brian with an E. There's many, many reasons, uh, Peter, but I like to always start with this one because E is for education, because we try to educate our listeners each week about business. Well, that's a great concept because everyone can be educated. I can be educated. Even our guests can be educated. The reality is nobody, nobody is above from being educated. So that's a really great concept. I'm glad that's part of our show. What are the other reasons why we have an E in Ask Brian? E also stands for experts because our guests are experts in their field. Absolutely. And this week is no different as each week we have an expert. Today we actually have two experts, two, double, double, double. So let's go. What are the other reasons why we have an E in Ask Brian? E is for experience because experience counts. Absolutely. And because... The more experience you have, the more educated you have been. Not a formal education. That doesn't mean going to college. That just means more lessons you're going to learn. Because to be successful, you have to have a lot, a lot of times where you've actually failed to be successful. You cannot just go in a straight line. It's not a dynamic aspect. We're both New Yorkers Yorkers here. We call them street smarts. Street smarts. you got to have that. New Yorkers. We are New Yorkers. I'm walking here. Another one. For you here, Peter. Uh, e is for enthusiasm because being enthusiastic leads. Enthusiasm is woo! <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes, that's right, and that's another E. E is for excitement because being excited gets you going. Gets you going each time. That's right. Yes, sir. E, of course, for entrepreneur because most of our listeners are business owners, and as you said. Our listeners and even some of our guests sometimes can learn things, even if they are entrepreneurs, from fellow entrepreneurs. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this really is geared towards entrepreneurs, but anyone in business can learn something. Now, I know two left. I can't remember all of them, but I do know two. But one of them, unfortunately, you're going to have to deal with it because uh, our co-host, who loves that word, 
is not here. So I'm just going to go Grease Lightning. And this is where Tracy would say, because it's electrifying. That's right. I think I kind of sounded like her, just a little bit. I think I might be able to replace her. You don't have that (laughs) Alabama accent like I do. Anyway, and the last one. The last one. Hmm. Well, there's a personal favorite of mine, and that is ease for empathy. Because being in someone else's shoes helps you to understand your audience, your customers, and products and services. Absolutely perfect. You are excellent, dude. So, Calabunga, let's go on. Thank you very much, Matt. Excited to have you back. Excited to have me back. Now we're going to go to our guests. And our guests are from a company called Dignity Coconuts. Is that correct? Yes. And am I speaking to Eric or Stephen? Because we have two people today. Yeah, this is Stephen. How are you doing, Brian? Hi, Stephen. I'm doing And I'm Eric. I'm online, too. Um, Super. And so we have the CEO and president. So first of all, let's go to Stephen because you started the company, you're the founder, and we're going to go over questions back and forth. But first of all, so you are the founder of Dignity Coconuts. What is Dignity Coconuts? Well, Dignity Coconuts is a company in uh, the Philippines that we started with the purpose of intentionally using business to transform a community. So we chose a very, very poor and remote area in the Philippines to establish a coconut company to produce uh, products that were ready for export trade in an effort to create jobs, to connect that part of the country to the global economy, and uh, to bring change to the community. So uh, it's a coconut company. We, our primary product is just the finest virgin coconut oil in the world. Now, it's coconut oil. It's not just like regular coconuts or coconut milk or coconut this or coconut that. you limiting yourself to coconut oil or are there other coconut products you have? We have other products and we're developing more as we go. Some of those products come from other parts of the coconut. One of our intentions is to be further and further toward a zero waste company. So we're trying to use more and more of the coconut byproduct, shell and husk and the, the meat and so forth. So, uh, those are coming along, but our primary product is the virgin coconut oil, BCO, we call it. And what was the background in starting this company besides the whole concept of bringing other parts of the Philippines in? What was your prior background to that? Well, two of us founded the company. My partner, Don, from Boston was with Bain, and he was coming in with a strong desire to use his later years in life to do something with his business skills. He had been pretty successful. And I came from a nonprofit background, international nonprofit. So we kind of put our heads together and brought those two skill sets to begin to think about where we could do something and make a difference through business. So he had some experience in the Philippines. I had a lot of experience in the Philippines. And just by process of elimination through a lot of ideas, we came upon coconut as uh, very prevalent. If you ever go to the Philippines, it's everywhere. So that was how it kind of came together, the two of us being partners to start it out. And how long ago did the company start? Well, we really started 10 years ago. There were some things that Don and I were doing before that, but this particular variation was about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. Yeah, we found it, started it, built a building, a factory plant there, and 
what we call learning center and a number of buildings on a campus down in the middle section of the Philippines. And at that time, was your intent to do the coconut oil, or is it just to educate about coconut, or to bring them into the global commerce, or, or what, what was the intent yeah, initially? It was, initially, we were very focused on the coconut product, and really the, the feature was the coconut oil. But with that, we really were, and our the whole reason for going halfway around the world was to do a a proof of concept sort of model. Could could a company be very intentional? about uh, a bottom line in the company of social change. So you have your profitability, but could we build into the business model impacting the community? So they really ran together, Brian, the product, coconut, and the the change in the community. So so I don't want to go off base, but I do have a question that's a little unusual. I usually do sure. not ask this type of question, but it's a political question because recently, in the last few years, there's been a lot of political change in the Philippines where you're based. I mean, I know back in the 80s, they had Galacos and that whole fiasco, and then they had a whole bunch of Democratic people. And then after that, I don't know if it's Democratic still or or whatever, but I have seen a lot of hardline aspects. How has that affected your business model, especially being in the Philippines? Yeah. Well, as you say, we're careful about politics as uh, can be sort of explosive. So we we have... (laughs) But we have been there through some significant changes. There was a President uh, Duterte who was different uh, than they had had for quite a few years. He was very tough on crime and uh, very independent. He was trying to lift the Philippines from being a sort of a subservient attitude to being very much more internationally proud. And uh, so he did some things that were controversial and there were some for and against. In terms of our company, it really didn't have a major impact until the pandemic because there was a very, very strict set of rules put in place, far more than the U.S. during the pandemic, and that made it real tough on business. But we weren't affected that much by the politics because we're so far away from the centers of power in Manila or in in the South in in, uh, Davao and Mindanao. So we kind of we were focused on the people that we were with and creating jobs and helping to bring economic development there. So uh, it's changed again. There's an, a new president, and we're hoping for the best from him and kind of just keep moving forward, you know, keep our heads straight in front. Thanks a lot. Uh, and Eric, uh, sure. so you weren't a, Eric, you were not a founder, but you got involved in the company pretty early on. What was your role when you first came aboard, and when? how long after the company was founded did you get on board? Yeah, so my background was business. I had run a business for three years, painting houses, paid through college, and I uh, hired my college friends to, to work for me. That worked out really well, and I felt, I don't know, you know, this is a bit weird to say, but felt compelled by God to go take a year and go help people in Iraq. Uh, there were some really bad situations, and so we did a ton of like projects, water projects, dental health, all these kinds of things, and it was it was awesome. We did some really great impact there. This was back in 2003, 2004, and coming back from that, I felt like I just had this choice: like, do I go back to starting a business like I wanted, or do I, do I kind of go down this nonprofit road uh, that was before me? And so I took the next nine years and went nonprofit, and so helped a lot of people in different areas of the world, a lot of obscure areas, 
and it was really good. And But towards the end of my time, I started having a lot of our teams around the world say, Eric, I think actually one of the ways I could help this community the most would be to start a business and create jobs. But, you know, how do we do that? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I started seeing that business could really play a key role in helping it make an impact in these communities. That if you could really take the best that business has to offer in terms of job creation, economic development, and marry it with the good heart nature of nonprofits that want to help people and help them, you know, really get out out of these terrible situations and not create dependency, that that could create something really powerful. And I saw Stephen doing this, and I, I'll disclose, uh, he's my father-in-law, so I had an up-close personal look at some of his journey. And as soon as he started Dignity Coconuts, I said, I want in on this. This sounds fantastic. So I joined within a few months. Now, I think they said you, you guys actually built a factory. Factories are not easy things to do. I've been involved with a couple of companies. In fact, I'm involved right now with a company that's building a factory. And we got from scratch and build a factory and try to build a company. That is not an easy task. So give us some of the uh, <laughs> problems that you had and some of the ways you succeeded. Oh, oh Brian. Oh, gosh. It was unbelievable. <laughs> You'd have to imagine. We're down in an area where at the time when we started, there were it was dirt roads, which were actually mud three quarters of the year. Uh, no electricity, uh, no internet, no possible access for large vehicles, trucks, and certainly not a concrete truck. So building a substantial factory where, you know, we have 100 to 150 workers inside, it was really amazing. I remember one time we're trying to get all of our cement in bags, in truck after truck with bags coming through the mud. Well, the river was up. So the truck oh my couldn't get across because there was no there was no bridge, and we formed a like a fire brigade for cement bags across, and that whole factory was built with the bags people by hand put across that river. And so I, I won't get into stories, but it was a huge challenge to build a substantial factory. One thing we didn't think of at the very beginning was that years later that would become a safe place in typhoons for people to hunker down. Wow. And we became the place in the community where you could go if it got really bad. But anyway, we have about a 14-acre campus and several buildings. We have to generate our own power. I will tell you, just I don't want to jump ahead in the story, Brian, but it's completely changed now. When we went in, it gave opportunity for the government to have a reason to bring a road in, concrete, to bring electric in. Uh, we built a Internet downlink and begin to teach people how to use that. So there's a lot of stories. I won't jump ahead, but the factory was a major, major effort. And uh, you I wouldn't know it imagine. now, but yeah, it was great. Great. It almost has a kind of concept like a Peace Corps, you know, the Peace Corps going around the world and building, you know, things around the world to try to create an economy and a, and a, and a, and a state. And, but actually the difference is that Peace Corps is a governmental entity and you guys do it privately, privately funded. So that's, that's a major difference, but it, it has that Peace Corps concept in my head to it. Yeah, yeah, now, a little bit. Now, what was the population of that town before you started, and what is it currently? We have nine villages around us. In the Philippines, they call them barangays, but let's call them villages. And they, together, were 33,000 people. And uh, some live in a little village center and some 
farther out are farmers that we've trained and helped to get organic certified, which is a big deal to, so that their coconuts are more valuable. They're further out, and uh, we actually have nearly 160 uh, farms that we have under contract with us, but about 80,000 trees together on those farms. So our villages are about yeah about 30,000, and it's not a lot different population now, Brian, really, than it was then. I haven't seen a census lately, but it, it's pretty close to the same. It's not a lot of rapid growth. Where are you selling oil to? Primarily the United States. Uh, it's an export product to here. We're in about 1,200 retail big box store or some small stores, but uh, chains in the U.S. And a, a small footprint in Hong Kong where just a circumstantial buyer there with a health food stores. So I'm going to switch back a little bit right now to Stefan. And so before nonprofits, did you have a prior background in business or was it, or were you always involved in nonprofits? It was always in nonprofits, but it was executive leadership. So I ran uh, three different nonprofits over a few decades, and each one had between 800 and 1,000 staff. So in that role, even if you're a nonprofit, you have to learn how to run a business. You have to learn to to handle the management. So, but yeah, I'm I'm stronger on the nonprofit side. Eric's got a little more business background than I do. And the reason why you went into nonprofits was a reason. Yeah, I think you know both Eric and I are motivated by uh, our sense that that God calls us to live life in a way that serves and helps other people to kind of turn away from a selfish approach to life and instead do what needs to be done to help others. I once heard that's what charitable work is all about. It's captured in the word others. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of our base of motivation. Different backgrounds, but both Eric and I come from that point of view. Super. Eric, what is the current revenue? Give me, I maybe can't give you the exact dollar amount. What is your current revenue estimate for the next 12 months? The next 12 months, we're finally looking to grow after a few years of really not being able to. We hope to reach a million in sales this year, but to kind of go back to, you know, the pandemic was hard on everybody. For us in the Philippines, we got hit really hard. There was a complete lockdown in the Philippines. It was hard to get anything in and anything out. And on top of it, we had a few super typhoons hit our area that completely destroyed our coconut supply. The first one happened at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic. And when that one hit, 20% of our coconut trees were completely toppled over. And then most of the rest that were even standing, the palms of the trees and the coconuts had blown off. So it just looked like toothpicks uh, just standing in the air. And so we thought at that time, gosh, I don't even know if we have a business, especially being after hit by the pandemic just after that. But really what kept us going was the community. The community really needed us during that time. This was their most desperate time. And for a while, it got so desperate. People were, they weren't sure if they would eat and be able to live. So we just did what we could. You know, we had that nonprofit background, so we knew how to do relief work. So we sent our skilled workers out and we repaired 336 homes. We helped the farmers. They were hit the worst. And so we put together cash assistance and food sacks for them just to be able to eat. We planted 2,500 coconut saplings. And then we did these series of rice distributions because people were hungry. 
you know, the first one, we just kind of cobbled together what we had and distributed 50-pound bags of rice to about 2,000 people. But then within a few months, they were hungry again, so we did it again. So over the course of that year, we distributed a quarter million pounds of rice house to house to over 2,200 families. So during that time frame, we were able to, especially with supply chain issues and COVID, were you able to do any exporting in 2020, or was that pretty much a dead year? We were. We pivoted, and our team in the Philippines was absolutely amazing. They figured out quickly how do we get our license to operate. Uh, we're in the food business, so you know we already have masks and gloves and things. So that part was really easy. We, we moved our machinery six feet apart. We did a skeleton crew. A lot of what you know, a lot of manufacturing did in the U.S. And then it proving to the government that we could operate safely, you know, that our team was able to do. The transportation was difficult. We started having these vigilante groups that would block the roads, and they wouldn't let our trucks in and out. They were just scared. They had heard about this COVID and that it was killing people, and it was spread person to person. And so they just blocked the road saying, we're not sure how this COVID thing works, but we're not letting it in. And so we, Steve and I, we, had, we were coming up with a plan of how we were going to go appeal to the senator and, and things like that with our American attitude. And our team in the Philippines, they just started going village to village, meeting with the local leader. They call him Barangay Captain. But sometimes they're very informal leadership. And just saying, hey, would you give us a letter that we can give these vigilante groups so that we can pass through? And most of these village leaders, they knew the good work that we were doing. We'd already done so much goodwill that they were happy to do it. So they got us a stack of 88 letters that our trucks would go through every time, and they would hand these groups these letters saying, we're allowed to pass through. Now, <laughs> as Americans, that sounds ridiculous to come up with that kind of strategic plan of contingency, and yet that's what they came up with, and it worked. Well, what I'm thinking about concepts like that is, they're vigilantes, so they might be from different tribes, different groups, different villages. And so you've got a, you know, their leader of their village, you know, it might right. be on the 48th letter. <laughs> so, I mean, right. Right. Try to figure right. that out. it's got to take a while. Yeah. One thing I want to chip in here is just, I, I know we're in the L.A. area here, and the Filipino people are just incredible. They're so industrious, so smart and hardworking that uh, they shine. You know, they just find ways to get things done against, you know, adversity. So uh, there's those examples. There's many, many, many more. So we're, we're kind of awed by them. And by the way, our entire company is Filipino, except three or, three or four of us. <laughs> and then we were shipping them out. How did you get the oil out? Yeah, so this is where... You know, having those letters in hand, we're you know they would uh, they would take our truck and drive you know from our place up to Manila, thirteen hours away, and they'd have this stack of letters that they'd be handing out to each each kind of blockade. So that's how we got product in and out. But it was tough, and actually the harder part was the coconut supply because there were no coconuts in our area. So <laughs> our team. Again, we, Steve and I were pulling our hair out thinking, you know, how are we going to close this business? And our team, they approached one of our competitors and said, can we buy some of your coconuts? And we thought they'd never go for it. 
And they did. Now we paid a premium price, of course, but, uh, that's how we survived. It was probably about a year where we were buying coconuts from competitor. They were, you know, organic certified. They were, you know, pretty good quality, but, um, yeah, so we just got creative. That's how we survived it during those times. That is definitely interesting because, you know, pre-enterprise and market, whatever, you know, you would think your competitors would say, let's have you go under because then I've got one less competitor and it's a lot easier for me <laughs> to, to make it, right? So that's a really that's interesting right. concept. Well, one of the and interesting it, things that happened there, Brian, was that that competitor actually, what he said to me was, I have heard what you guys are doing in your community and I'm going to let you do this. So our impact in our own community, six hours away from him, by the way, going to get our coconuts was six hours each way. Wow. But going, his willingness to do it had everything to do with him saying, I, I've heard your story. And I think that was really, really cool. So it's the idea that doing good is actually good business. That is really interesting. Now, what about the store shelves? I mean, you said you sell to retail chains in America. I mean, was it, were you able to supply the stores with the product that they asked for or, or the delays with the supply chain? Yeah. If you know the grocery industry, it's, you know, if you're out of stock for a few weeks, you're at risk of getting dropped by the store completely. We're in some pretty, you know, big name stores, Meyer in the Midwest, Stop and Shop and Giant on the East Coast. And of course, we're on Amazon, our website. But um, because of the typhoon, we were out of stock for there'd be times where it was four to six weeks at a time. And if it had not been for the pandemic, where our other competitors, they were out of stock because of pandemic-related ish issues, I think we would have probably lost nearly all of our stores. But we were fortunate because others were dealing with the same issues that we were able to retain almost all of our stores, probably about 90%. Wow, that is amazing. I mean, the supply chain issues are still going around today. So, I mean, it's definitely there. <laughs> Stefan and Eric, so what are your plans for the future? We uh, built this plant down in, uh, it's called the Bicol region of the Philippines, which is the poorest region. But we, we wanted to prove that you could put a business in a difficult area, that you could make a difference, et cetera, that I, I mentioned early on. And so what we want to do, Brian, is move beyond that one place where we are. We're, we're glad we're there with a, you know, up to 150 workers in the plant and 160 farming families. Uh, we, we're, we're making a difference. But we'd like to get out to some additional areas and expand the business, both on the production side and on the sales side, and keep going. I know that Eric's a little younger than me, so he's... Uh, He's got a longer landing runway here, but uh, I'd like to get something going pretty quick here. So that's where we want to go. Now, are you focusing solely in the Philippines, or are you going to look to other places for one? And the next part of that question is, are you sticking to coconut oil, or are you going to be going to other products? Well, we are probably going to do our second location in the Philippines because there's a lot of learning that goes on with the legal systems and culture and language and everything. But we really are looking at other places in the world. When you think about where the coconut is, it runs right across the tropics all the way across the world. And in that band are some of the most needy areas uh, on the planet. So got a lot of opportunity in places across Southeast Asia, across South Asia, into Africa. I've got personal desires for particular places, 
But then in terms of product, we really do want to develop the other products from the coconut that we've been experimenting with. Uh, we've got some lip balm going we, and other personal use products. But then industrial products, the coconut shell powder, there are a number of uses for that, as well as the, uh, the husk can be made into erosion control blankets that you put on hillsides when you're planting grasses and so forth. A lot that can be done, and we really want to expand well beyond the virgin coconut oil. Other than the Philippines, what country has the largest supply of coconuts? Indonesia is number two. Indonesia. So Indonesia is about the same volume as the Philippines, and they both are large island nations, the Philippines with over 7,000, and Indonesia actually with over 10,000 islands. But all then across, you have other, India would be the third, and Sri Lanka, fourth, and so on, Thailand. And then all through Southeast Asia, there's pretty heavy population. When you look from mountainside down into valleys in these countries, it's coconut as far as you can see. So I've had people ask, how do you handle supply? (laughs) That is not the problem unless you're, of course, we have to certify ours, which takes a couple of years, but. Anyway, yeah, that's where we'd, we'd love to go, keep going. And, uh, but I'll tell you, for your listeners, just real quick, I just hope that people listening start thinking about their own businesses and what they could do with it if they got really serious about another bottom line, and that's transformational life change. In communities around L.A., Santa Clarita, but also other places in the U.S. and across the world, and maybe somebody will say, hey, wait a minute, I know what I could do. There's uh, credible opportunity to create it. So is the brand name Dignity Coconuts, or do you have other brand names that you're selling the products under? It's under Dignity Coconuts. That's right. So DignityCoconuts.com, you'll find our website. You'll find us on Amazon. Uh, currently, we're, we have a bunch of holiday sales. You know, a lot of people want to use our gifts because they're gifts that give back. So we have holiday sales going around. We have beauty kits and cooking oils and other oils for skin and hair. And so they're great gifts for coworkers, neighbors, teachers, friends, and family. Now, we are in Los Angeles, so are there any locations other than doing it online or through Amazon? Are there any retail establishments in the Los Angeles or California area, or is that just coming in the future? That's coming in the future, but we'd love to get into some of those stores. And then the next question is, you're just selling to retail, but are you selling either to wholesale or to manufacturers so that people can use coconut oil? I mean, there's some big companies out there that use coconut oil in manufacturing, and there are other companies that, you know, wholesale as a brokers. Are you selling solely to retailers or to the other markets? Uh, mainly selling in our own jars, under our own brand, to retailers. Since, you know, we started out as a wholesale company. We were planning on just making the coconut oil and not having to do all the branding and marketing and things like that. We didn't really know that industry. But it was when we had some brands that were approaching us and wanting to buy our oil, and they, they would ask us, well, you know, we want to put your story on our jars. And there was something that just felt wrong, <laughs> that, that these brands, they were going to take our story and make it their own story as if they had done years of work in these communities just because they're paying a premium price for our oil. And we thought, hey, let's try our own brand. Before we kind of sell out, let's try our, our own brand, see what can happen. So we did a Kickstarter, and 
to raise $100,000. We raised $110,000. That paid for the jars with labels and the machinery. And we did it. We launched, and we've never looked back. We sell a little bit wholesale, but 98% is under our, our own brand. Awesome. This is our last segment, so I know everybody's tearing up and really, really angry and upset that the show is going to be over and you have to wait an entire week. But you don't have to wait an entire week. Why? Because the S. Bryan Show not only has it been on for nearly six years, but we have over two years of podcast episodes available on iTunes, available on Spotify, anywhere else you listen to a podcast, you can always find S. Bryan. And if you want to listen to this show, you can listen to that this show also by just tuning into Apple, Spotify, anywhere you can find a podcast, you can find Ask Brian, and this show will be available probably in the next week, today being December 8th, it'll probably be on probably about another eight days. So you can watch it, listen to it, and when I say watch it, you can, you can watch it on YouTube. Now, we're coming back to Dignity Coconuts, and Dignity Coconuts, if somebody wants to buy Dignity Coconuts, but they don't have a store in their location or within five miles of where they live. How can they buy it? Yeah, you can find us on Amazon, and you can find us on our own website. Our website has a lot more products. We currently are having a holiday sale, and we got some bundles together that are great gifts. We have some beauty kits, some kits that are great for you know, if you have a friend that's into cooking, if you have somebody that just they, they just love gifts that, that make a difference, make an impact. So it's great for your coworkers, your neighbors, teachers, friends, and family. Kind of something for everybody. So, and is your website www.dignitycoconuts.com? Yeah. So that's where somebody would go and they can just order online. Now, is there a minimum that they need to order, or is it free shipping? How does that work? Yeah, free shipping on all orders over thirty-five dollars. And I'll mention, you know, for those of your business owners, and you're still scrambling to find an employee gift, these can be great gifts for your employees. Wow, that is awesome. So we're going to come back to the show. We've got a couple of minutes left, not that much long. And I know we've got about four minutes left and we're going to have to cut out. But how many people do you currently have at your track? Is that 150? So we have 121 employees that work at our facility. And let me just kind of give you the context for these employees. For them, this area has over 70% unemployment rate. So... If they have a desire to to get to not fish or uh, be a farmer for rice or farmer for coconuts, they have to go on this desperate search to find another job, usually in a faraway city or another country. At best, they're you know overworked and lonely. At worst, they're often abused or even trafficked. And so we have a lot of employees that they're really excited to be able to live and work right in their town and live with their families. And going on the other side of the equation, how are you able to get into these stores in the United States? I mean, you mentioned some pretty big stores. Stop and Shop is very, very big. Myers is very, very big. How are you able, you know, you're a brand new company, startup, you're creating a product in the Philippines, it's coconut oil. How are you able to get into some of these stores without giving away your, your trade secrets? Well, we really, it, it, uh, it kind of seemed like a miraculous for us because we just thought, how can a small company like ours even get a meeting? Usually that's just so difficult. But we had friends of friends of friends that happened to get us a meeting and we got an early break in Meyer that gave us kind of brand validity. 
And then uh, we had a meeting with Stop and Shop and Giant, and they loved our, our product as well. And we've been there ever since. And how many years has that been? Three, four years? I mean, uh, 2017. 2017. And during the pandemic as well, which, as, as we said, was a very, very difficult time frame. Yeah, those, those are hard years. Now, is your coconut oil mid-priced, higher-end, compared to other coconut oil? Yeah, so when we were first starting to make the coconut oil, we were mostly concerned with the community and making an impact there. And so we turned to how everybody else was making the coconut oil, which the most common is the cold press coconut oil. Well, I guess the refined, but that was disgusting. We didn't want to touch that moldy coconuts with, you know, insects, all of them. So in the process of learning how to make the virgin coconut oil with cold press, we had some people with us that were kind of more your engineers, inventor types that started saying, this can't be the best way to do it. This coconut oil usually has a real strong coconut flavor to it, and you have to use a high heat process, even though it's called cold-pressed. And we thought, what if we tried a different way? So we had this idea of trying a centrifuge to separate the milk from the oil, and we tried it, and we're amazed that it tasted better, and it also was a raw product, so it had all the micronutrients that weren't burned off from the high heat. So we developed a whole new proprietary way of making coconut oil that it really is better. We've tried everybody's coconut oil, and everybody always says ours is the best. So we're a, we're and, a, and, a premium place in the market, yeah. And you've been organic since the beginning, or is that recent? That's, we've been since the beginning. We've been organic certified. I think had we known how hard it would be to get organic certified with these, all these small farms, I'm not sure if we would have taken it on. Most of our farms are around uh, six to eight acres. So these are not big plantations. And yet most people, they don't have, they have less than a sixth grade education. And so to be able to document and do all the numbering of all these trees and everything, it was really, really difficult uh, to do. And um, I'm glad we did it. It was really good for the farmers. It's good, been good for our business, but it was a huge undertaking. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Stefan. Unfortunately, the show has come to an end. So Roger and out. we're going to be entering. You're listening to KTS 1220 and 98.1 FM, the Yes Fine Show. And if you missed any part of the show, you can listen to it on our podcast, on Facebook Live, on YouTube. It'll all be available there. So thank you very much. Until next week, over and out. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian radio show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.